But this morning, I want to uh, kind of make the message about communion. Usually we don't do this. Usually we kind of slip communion in our service uh, right before the message. But, you know, communion is something that is critical to the New Testament church. It's one of two ordinances that the New Testament church celebrates, one being baptism, believer's baptism. Those who come to Christ are encouraged to be baptized in the waters of baptism to express to everyone that they are now a follower of Christ, that baptism doesn't save them in any way. It doesn't have any implications as far as their salvation goes, but it does provide a visual testimony of their transformation in Christ. And so that's why we celebrate believers' baptism. And I just want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, come and talk to Ken or I, and we'll line up a time. We'll fill this nice little tub up here with nice warm water, and we'll put you under the water and have you baptized just like Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And uh, it's a good testimony, it's a good time that you can uh, share your testimony and just allow the Lord to use that time for his glory. But the other church ordinance that we have in the New Testament church is the ordinance of communion, the Lord's table. And today I want to speak on the subject of coming to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, biblically. Biblically, what does that mean to come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table? We have the elements here set on the table before us. And just so you know, our church practices what we call an open communion service. You don't have to be a member of this church, Grace Bible Church, but we do expect you to be a member of Christ Church. The Bible indicates that communion is for those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who have put their faith, their trust, and have been saved gloriously by his grace. And it's only then that you understand what this means. This doesn't mean that uh, this is a a means to salvation. Uh, You don't take communion in order to be saved. Uh, These are just pieces of cracker and grape juice. But what they symbolize, what they illustrate for us, is really the whole atonement of Christ, that he gave up his body, that he spilled his blood for our sins. And so I just want to take a little walk um, into a local church. Not this church, it's just kind of a make-believe church. And I want you to follow along with me as I read this little illustration for us. Come with me to the typical church. We're going to look at a few members, both as they look from the outside and also how they look from the inside, as seen by the Lord. Well, look here. Here comes Mary Smith. She seems happy as she smiles at various friends as she enters the church. But you may have missed that icy glance that she cast toward Linda Brown. The two women aren't talking anymore since the falling out they had a couple of months ago over the woman's potluck. To think that she calls herself a Christian, Mary thinks to herself as she goes down the aisle toward her seat. As Linda notices Mary smiling at everybody, she sits there, that hypocrite, what a phony. Over there you see Jerry Jones. He serves on the deacon board. He's active in the men's fellowship. He teaches the fourth grade Sunday school class. He's there every time the church doors are open. Boy, that Jerry, he's a real servant. If you ever need anything done around the church, just call Jerry. 
He'll help out every Saturday and a lot of the evenings when they're putting different things together. Matter of fact, the pastor even calls calls Jerry Old Faithful. He's the kind of church member every pastor is looking for. Or is he? If you could look beneath, beneath the frenzy of activities in Jerry's life, you would find a man who is trying to work off a load of guilt. There are some things in Jerry's past that nobody here at First Church would ever guess existed. Not even his wife knows about some of the terrible things that he did when he was in the Navy. Maybe if he can just do enough serving the Lord, he can forget about all those things and tip the scales so that he can forgive himself. Besides, he and his wife don't get along real well, and it's just easier at home if he keeps himself busy with church work. Oh yeah, there, over there in the corner, there's James, a, a single young man who's fighting a losing battle with pornography. He's not, on, he's not alone, he's just one of many single and married men who are defeated by this plague. You know, I pray to God those people don't exist in our church. But realistically, probably they do, to some extent. That's just a fictional list of people that I made up. I'm sure there aren't real people in the evangelical churches of today like that. Or are there? Well, they were in the church of Corinth. They were there. There were various factions in the church fighting for prominence. Some were involved in immorality. Some had issues with drinking problems. And as we've learned, as we've gone through this study in Corinth, that really Paul had planted that church led by the Lord. And this church was there to have an influence on the pagan city of Corinth. But unfortunately, the reality was that the pagan city had an influence on the church to the negative. Um, Now remember, the, the early church had no church buildings. Um, and Sunday was not a day off. Um, it was their custom to gather on Sunday evenings in the homes of wealthier members to celebrate the Lord's table. That's how they did it back then. Said they met house to house. Their worship was really preceded by a what we'd call a potluck dinner, an agape love feast, where they would all come together in the name of Christ and eat and have fellowship The problem was, in Corinth, what happened was that the wealthy members got there first. And since they brought most of the food, they gorged themselves. They didn't wait for some of the poorer individuals to arrive. And when the slaves and the other people often arrived at these feasts, well, guess what? All the food was gone. And even worse, a few of the wealthy members filled their wine glasses just a little bit too many times. And they were getting drunk at this feast. As a result, they completely missed the significance of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Some of the members were suffering severe discipline from the Lord for their 
irreverence for their unholy behavior. And that's really the background of the text for the text I want to read for us this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And you can follow along in your Bibles beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we were judged by the Lord, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul writes about these problems here. He deals with the Lord's Supper. And like I said, the Lord's Supper, along with communion, is one of two ordinances that we're continually uh, encouraged to participate in as the church. Now, growing up in the Catholic Church, we didn't have ordinances. We had what we called um, sacraments. And if you can just kind of think of it this way, um, in the Catholic Church, I know growing up, these, these sacraments that were laid out before us were a means to earn God's grace. That's what they were for. You had several sacraments that you were supposed to partake in. But the New Testament church has two ordinances. It doesn't, it's not a means of earning grace. It's not a means of you know, doing these things to make God like you more. But it's, it's really a means of observing what the Lord has done for us and what he's done for us personally and really as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, the Bible says. Now, communion... 
as we know it, is, is called the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. We get the name communion from 1 Corinthians 10, 16, when it's used there in sharing is the Greek word, koinonia, fellowship, uh, communion, that's what that means. It's also called the table of the Lord in, in verse 21 of chapter 10. And some people today, we refer to it as the Eucharist. That's not a bad name, that's actually a Greek word that means thanksgiving. Some of us who maybe were saved out of the Catholic Church, when we think of the word Eucharist, we go, oh, that's, that's bad. But it's really not. It's, it's, a, it's a good word. Um, we just have to put it in its context. So the original Lord's Supper was really a Passover meal. That's where Jesus adapted and applied the meaning of the, the Jewish feast. And he took that and he applied it to himself as the Savior of the world. Now, remember, the idea is that just as Israel was delivered from the death of all their firstborn, and from slavery to Pharaoh through the blood of the Passover lamb. You remember the story in the Old Testament. So we are today spared from God's judgment. We're spared from slavery to sin by the death of the Lamb of God. And so that's the, the text at which we're looking at this morning. And so we see here four ways, and they're in your outline there, four ways that we should come to the Lord's uh, table. Uh, First of all, we're to come to the Lord's table often, often. He says in verse 25 of this chapter, he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of, of me. And he says in verse 26, for as often as you eat the bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If the breaking of bread in Acts refers to the Lord's Supper, then in the first time they did this in the early church, it seems that they celebrated the Lord's Supper almost daily. And it tells us that in Acts, if you turn over to Acts chapter 2, you can see the verse there. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. It says this, and day by day, talking about the early church, they attended, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. A lot of people believe that that breaking of bread is the time of communion that these believers shared. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts. And so in the early church, the church actually met together on a daily basis. Think about that. Um, You know, we're lucky if we can get people to Sunday and Wednesday night. Think if you were expected to be here every day for a prayer meeting or for a communion time or for a service. Say, well, that's a bit much. Well, is it? But that's what they did in the early church. And so we have to be reminded of that, that sometimes our society strips away the need and the desire even for us to gather as believers. And it doesn't have to be at the church. It could be in a home. It could be for a dinner. It could be a fellowship time. You know, I missed the the 4th of July get-together last week because I wasn't here, and I, I truly missed it. I don't know who won the... What do they call that cornhole thing or whatever? <laughs> they have the cornhole competition. Um, but, you know, that, that, is, that is a blessed time when saints gather together. Uh, later in Acts 20, verse 7, we see where it became a weekly occurrence. It says they took place on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Um, it would be our Saturday night, technically, because that's when their Sunday begins. But we observe it on Sunday. Here in this church, uh, as, as many do, churches maybe celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month on the first Sunday of the month. That's what we do. 
Um, a few churches maybe do it less frequently. Maybe they only do it on Easter or Christmas. Other churches do it more often. They do it every week. Okay, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to that. It's just to say that, you know, it should be often. It should be on a regular time. It shouldn't be something that we forget to do. Um, it's, it's important that we stop and we pause and we reflect on what Christ has done for us as the body of Christ. Now, a lot of times when you have churches that do it every week or they do it every service even, you know, that people complain and they say, well, you know, if you do it that way, then you, it just becomes a ritual. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, hopefully reading your Bible becomes a ritual. Hopefully memorizing verses becomes a ritual. Or hopefully prayer becomes a ritual to you. You do it on a regular basis. There's nothing wrong with that. But here we have celebrated it on the first Sunday of the, the, the month and we'll continue to do that. But during these services, a lot of times we'll just kind of fit it in there and, uh, and move on with the service and have our message, and that's fine too. But we're to do it often. He tells us that. Um, so it should be something that's memorable. It should be something that's meaningful. Um, it, it should be something that we don't just cross off the list. You know, every morning when I leave the house for work, usually I'll give my wife a kiss. And, you know, goodbye, see you later, we'll see you at the office, whatever. And, you know, it's kind of a ritual. Um, But, you know, I like to make it memorable. I don't want it to be, you know, just, okay, whatever. And sometimes, to be honest with you, it, it gets to that point. And sometimes that can happen the same way with communion. Okay, we do communion, we pass the you know, the cracker, and then we do the juice, and then we pray, and then we leave. And that's not how it should be. It should be something that we do often, but it should also be a fresh thing that we do uh, when, we, when we observe it. So the second thing Paul points out here is not only doing it often, but come to the Lord's Supper with love for others. Love for others. In verses 23 and, and, uh, to 32, basically, he, he talks about this. He confronted them about divisions in the church with strife in the church. And we've seen this earlier on in, in 1 Corinthians as we've been going through this study. Uh, he's dealt with it over and over and over again. And uh, in verse 17, he says, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians for we all partake of one bread. So apparently, they passed around a common loaf of bread, and they would break off a piece and pass it around. I've been in churches that actually do that. Um, I remember in the Catholic Church when you would all drink from the same chalice. I think of it now, and I'm thinking, oh, gross. You know, what were they thinking? I mean, I know they wipe it off, but there's no way I would do that today. You know, but, uh, you know, that's what they used to do. And so the, the one loaf pictures the fact that we are one body in Christ. And so the divisions among the Corinthians in this, in this New Testament church here, it, it contradicted that. You know, it, it, it wasn't one body in Christ. Everybody was out for their own pound of flesh, really. And so in chapter 11, verses 18 to 19, he says, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must be divisions among you, he says. Well, what's he talking about here? So that those who are approved may become evident among you. 
This is a fairly difficult verse to really understand. A lot of commentators understand that Paul is saying that God works good even out of a bad situation. So even though there's divisions among you, God will still work. Um, One commentator basically puts it this way. He says, but of course there are divisions, there must be divisions among you so that those of you who are right will be recognized. Or you could think of it this way. Of course, you must have your factions so that your favorite leader can be in the spotlight. See, that's how they were doing it. Remember, they were saying, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos. They had all that attitude going on. Uh, Paul says that it would be better not to come together as a church at all than to come together with that kind of sort of divisions and rivalry going on. In other words, he's just kind of saying, you know, you might as well just all stay home if you're just going to come together and fight. And so Paul confronts here the selfishness and really the gluttony of those who were stuffing themselves, they were getting drunk at the common meal before the Lord's Supper. Uh, They weren't considerate of those who were poorer or even slaves. They didn't care. They figured, well, I bought the food. I'm going to eat the food. They didn't bring anything, so they don't deserve any food. Um, And when he says there in verse 20, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He means that their, their selfishness really nullified the very meaning of remembering the self-sacrificing nature of our Savior's sacrifice. And so it was really a, they were despising the church of God. They shamed the poor. And, and Paul was really shocked at this behavior. Uh, Paul says it there in a negative way, but stated positively, the point is that we are to come together to the Lord's Supper with genuine love for one another as the body of Christ. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to come together and have resentment in our heart toward another member of of the body of Christ. And we should pray and we should examine ourselves, the Bible says, when we gather for our communion time. Because you don't know what's going on in the heart of the person next to you. Only the Lord does. And this isn't a time to point fingers. It's a time to look and examine our own heart. And if everyone does that, then if everyone's right with the Lord, then there will be no division within the local assembly of believers. So to come to it rightly, you have to deal with sometimes some damaged relationships the best you can. Sometimes you have to confront. Sometimes you have to ask for forgiveness. Sometimes you have to grant forgiveness. But we're called to be gracious through that process. Um, our common participation, when we come together as the body of Christ, the symbols of his body, the symbol of his blood, it should really demonstrate the self-sacrificing love that Christ had for us. That he came and he was willing to die on our behalf. And sometimes, you know, there are some real conflicts that frankly are never resolved. They can't be resolved on this side of glory. And the reason I say that is because in Romans chapter 12, remember when we went through Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says this, if possible, so far as it what depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So if he says if possible, sometimes it may not be possible. And that gets frustrating when you're trying to make peace with someone and they don't want peace. They keep on lashing out. But you know what? You just have to do what you can. And you continue to be gracious. 
and you continue to be forgiving. Um, but when it's left up to us, we have to focus on the best of our ability. We should seek to be right with others before we come to this time in our service. Uh, Jesus taught this really in a, in a Jewish context over in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, he says this. He wanted them to understand. He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. See, that's what we're called to do as believers. God wants us to be reconciled with one another before we worship him, before we come together even as a church, let alone to have communion together. Otherwise, basically, we're proving ourselves to be religious hypocrites, just like the Pharisees were. Each one needs to ask the other's forgiveness for however that person was wronged. Um, And each one has to grant forgiveness and affirm the other as a brother or sister in Christ. Then we can come together biblically in a time that's honoring to the Lord and participate in the Lord's Supper with a clear conscience. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, you wonder, you, 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 you can realize people coming into church and you, you can just sense, boy, they just had a knockdown, drag out fight. <laughs> I don't know if it involved the kids. I don't know if it was just the husband or the wife, but whatever, man, they're just cold as ice when they walk through the doors back there. And somehow, in our human nature, we're able to turn a switch and just kind of, well, how, how was your week? Oh, fine, everything's fine, you know, when inside they're ready to kill somebody. See, we need to be transparent. We need to be honest, mostly before the Lord, because he sees what's in our heart. And so we need to make sure that that, that happens. You know, and parents, sometimes, you know, it's not easy raising kids. Sometimes Sunday mornings, trying to get everybody ready, get in the car, get dressed, all that stuff. Sometimes, you know what? The situation gets the best of you, and maybe you lose your temper with your kid, whatever. You know, even then, as parents, we're called to seek forgiveness, even from our children. We need to go to them and say, hey, I was wrong, and I yelled at you yesterday. Or I was wrong, I lost my temper. Now, you were wrong in your misbehavior, but I was wrong in the way I reacted to it. And I've asked God to, to forgive me, and I want to ask you, as my son or my daughter, will you forgive me as your mom or dad? That means the world to those kids. Because if that doesn't happen, guess what? They're seeing you live two different lives. You know, they're seeing you say one thing but act another. And when you're transparent and you're honest with your kids, um, you know, otherwise they, they look at you and, boy, they just got in trouble before church and you lost your tempo, temper and then you come into church and you, you're taking communion and they're watching you and they're probably thinking, wow, what a funny, phony my mom or dad is. You know, their, their religion, their Christianity is, is worthless. And that's cemented in their mind. And so we need to be open. We need to be transparent. It should be a display. The Lord's Supper should be a display that we are one in Christ. And so before we partake, we should clear up those relational issues. We should clear up any known sin in our lives by going to the Lord and asking, continuing to um, affirm his forgiveness for us as his children. Well, thirdly, Paul says here, when we come to the Lord's table, we should remember the Lord. Now, that seems kind of obvious, right? But you'd be surprised. Um, 
since Paul wrote 1 Corinthians before Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, we have here the earliest records of the words of Christ in the earliest account of the first Lord's Supper. And scholars differ over whether Paul means there in verse 23 he received this as a direct revelation from Christ or whether he received it from the Lord through the other apostles. Um, I think you need to look at four things here. First of all, remember the Lord himself. Remember the Lord himself. Now you're probably saying, well, wait a minute, how could you have communion and forget about the Lord? Trust me, it happens all the time. How could I be a Christian and forget about the Lord? It happens all the time. I see it happen all the time. In reality, we all get busy with all kinds of things, don't we? And some of those things are good things. Sometimes it's ministry things, even serving the Lord. Um, And we easily forget about the Lord himself amidst all our ministry items. You know, in my office, I have several pictures of my family, my wife and grandkids. And I don't have those pictures there because I forgot what they look like. You know, that's not why they're there. I, I have those pictures there, so when I see those pictures, it brings into my memory, and it touches my heart how much I love those individuals. Okay? And see, when I look at those pictures during the day, I'm reminded of my loved ones, of the times that we spent together, and really the sorrow that the times were not together. Um, but I think of what each one means to me. I recall the good times that we've shared together. Thank God for giving them to me. It it does something in your memory when you see a picture of someone. And it causes you to look forward to seeing them again and again. And that's the value of a picture. It's very emotional. It touches our hearts. Well, that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a picture. Jesus left for us a picture of himself to remember. And we should pause and we should look at it often. And when we do, it should remind us of this great love that he has for us, that he showed for us supremely on the cross. It should fill our hearts with the desire to see him when he comes again. It should make us look to ourselves and ask, is there anything in my life that needs to be dealt with before I meet my bridegroom face to face? It should touch our hearts and make us say, thank God for when he has given us what he has given us in Christ. So it's a time to remember our beloved Savior. Secondly, Paul points out here, it's really a time to remember the Lord's substitutionary sacrifice for you. Aren't you grateful that God didn't lay out salvation for us in a way that says, okay, you got to do all this stuff, and then eventually if you do enough stuff, then I'll grant you salvation and forgiveness and you can be in heaven. But only if you do all this stuff. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. Thank God he didn't do that. Um, Jesus took the bread, it says, and broke it and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And then he says this, do this in remembrance of me. This is really a, a prophecy that's fulfilled from Isaiah 53. Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, would die for our sins. Our guilt was placed on him. Um, the Savior, Jesus Christ, was here on earth for 30-some years. He lived a perfect life. He never once sinned in any form or fashion, in thought or deed. And yet, when he went to the cross, he took upon himself all of the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him and took them upon himself. 
And God treated him, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, as if he had committed all those sins. And he had to pay the price for our sin. Now, it's only by faith in Christ that now we can live a guilt-free life. I'm sure we all have a a book of things that we did, (laughs) maybe when we were younger, maybe when we were older, whatever, that we're not honoring to the Lord. And we could fill it up really quick if we sat down and wrote out, boy, I did this, I did that, I did that. But you know what? You don't have to live a guilty life the rest of your life based on what you have done in your past because Christ has come to set you free from that. And, and it's, it's only then when you understand that you can be forgiven through Christ and his sacrifice on the, the cross. It's not by coming to church. It's not by paying a tithe. It's not by getting baptized. It's not by taking communion. It's by God giving you the gift of grace through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you affirming that you desire to live for him and follow him. And he will forgive your sins. He removes that guilt that's plagued our lives all along. Now, when he says, this is my body, we're not going to go into all the different views here. You know, uh, unfortunately, the Catholic Church believes that the priest somehow takes the host and it literally, physically turns into Jesus' flesh. They call it transubstantiation. And the priest has some magical powers where he does this. That's not taught in the Bible. That's not scriptural. That is completely heretical. And it doesn't happen. (laughs) When you go to the Catholic Church and you take communion, a little wafer on your, it doesn't turn into a piece of flesh. That's what they teach, but it doesn't. And so it's very important. What was Jesus saying here? He was was talking about symbolically. He He was using that piece of bread as a symbol. And that's why he says, you know what, this is, this is my body, and I'm going to break it for you. This is my blood. It's going to be spilt for you. This is what was shed for you. Um, now, is, is Jesus spiritually present here in our communion service? Well, sure he is. I pray he's spiritually present in all of our services. But this is a piece of bread, literally. That's all it is. It's a cracker, unleavened bread, and it's grape juice. There's nothing holy about these, this substance. What's holy is what it represents. It's a symbol of his suffering and death on the cross for you and for me. When you partake of communion, it doesn't automatically give you grace. It doesn't do that. First Peter 2, 4 Verse, or chapter 2, verse 24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Never forget that. That's what, that's what Christ's substitutionary death and sacrifice means to us. That it's through his death that we can be healed spiritually. Of our sin. Well, the third thing here Paul points out is remember your complete forgiveness through the new covenant. It's not partial forgiveness. It's not, you're not half forgiven. See, remember in the Old Testament, if you look over at Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, we see here 
whoever wrote Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, but Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it tells us of some of the sacrifices that went old, went on in the Old Testament. In, in chapter 10, verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. And then look at this. What's it say? Which can never take away sin. It was just a ritual. It was something they were looking forward to, Christ's sacrifice. <clears throat> but you think with all the blood and guts that were spilled in the Old Testament, all these animals being sacrificed over and over, blood running everywhere. But you know what? It never forgave any sin. They were doing it as an act of obedience, looking forward ultimately to the sacrifice of Christ. And that's why in verse 25, verse chapter 11, 1 Corinthians Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant. See, we're not going to continue to do this sacrificial thing like the Old Testament anymore. We're going to end that. And that's going to end when I hang on the cross and die and spill my blood for your sins. And as a result of that, there's going to be a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It refers to the Lord's promise, that, that new covenant, um, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. tells us that in Jeremiah 31, 34, or Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10. We should remember that the Lord forgets. The Lord forgets. Now, truly, he is omniscient, so he doesn't forget our sins as we forget things. Rather, when it says that he forgets, it means that he will not bring up our sins for judgment against us if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. See, if you've never come to Christ, if you've never put your faith, your trust in him, this is your greatest need. You have a weight of sin on you personally that one day when you die, you will be standing before a holy God and he's not going to ask you if you came to church on Sunday or if you took communion or if you got baptized or if you gave money to feed the poor. The only thing he's going to observe is, what did you do with my son? What did you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? What did you do with the work that he did for you on Calvary? See, and it's when you come to acknowledge that and you realize that, wow, this isn't about me working for my salvation. This is about me acknowledging what God has done for my salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never come to Christ, now is the time to do that. Now is the time to turn to the cross. Now is the time to acknowledge your sin before a holy God and realize that, you know what? I'm not perfect. I've sinned in a myriad of ways, but God requires perfection. God requires complete holiness for me to get to heaven. And there's no way that I could ever be completely holy in my own standing. I need a Savior. I need someone to pull me out of the, the muck and the mire of my sin. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've done that, never forget. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, never forget that his death brought you together. He reconciled you to God forever. Forever. Just like that song we sang. Forever God is faithful. If you're a believer in Christ here today, there is nothing you could ever do to sever that relationship with your Savior. Ever. 
That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? The security that we have in Christ. That should allow us to sleep well at night. That should allow us to get through the times when we stumble and we fall and we sin and we do things that maybe are not honoring to the Lord. Yeah, we feel guilty then and we should because the Lord convicts us. But then we go right back to him as 1 John 1.9 says and what? What do we do? We confess our sins. Why? Because he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even if there's something we forgot, in Christ we're still forgiven. I remember... I was in the hospital room of someone who was passing away. And I assumed they were a believer. Their loved ones assumed they were a believer. But there was, they, they raised a question. They said, Pastor, if there's a sin in my life that I haven't asked God's forgiveness for, will I still go to heaven when I die? And that's a pretty good question. And I had to ask them, well, are you trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? yes. Well, then, if you're trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, even though you don't confess your sin, that's covered under God's gracious forgiveness. Um, and you, you stop and you think about that. Wow, that's, that's, that's a glorious truth. But the last thing here is remember that Jesus is coming again. And that's what he says here in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What's it say? Until he comes. Until he comes. I mean, I don't know about you, beloved, but you look around, and I'm sure Paul felt the same way back when he was dealing with this church, but sometimes you look around the world and you wonder, boy, this is just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. What's wrong is right. What's right is wrong. Everything's upside down. I mean, it's Romans 1 all over again. Read through the chapter, first chapter of Romans, and you see what exactly is playing out in our society today. I don't know about you, but I'm excited for the Lord to come back. But I know that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I know that God has still people that need to hear the truth of the gospel. Whether it's here, whether it's in Thailand, whether it's in India, who knows? God knows. But Jesus Christ will not come back one second before that final person puts their faith and trust in Christ. So if you're excited about the Lord's return, it's not a time as church members to cross your arms and say, well, I'm just going to wait for Jesus to come back and kind of just put my feet up and, you know, relax. No, it's a time to be diligently involved in ministry, diligently involved in proclaiming. That's what he says. You proclaim the Lord's death. That word, translated their proclaim is used everywhere for proclaiming the gospel proclaiming the gospel see that's what the lord's supper is all about it's it's proclaiming the death the resurrection and you know what he couldn't come again if he were not raised from the dead because he wouldn't have been god and each time we partake of the lord's supper think about this each time we have communion together as the church this could be the last time this could be the last time. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. We may not be here next Sunday. You know, there's nothing politically, there's nothing in, in eschatology that says this has to happen before the Lord returns. There's nothing. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. It can happen any time. And that trumpet may sound. The Bible says the dead in Christ will rise and we will be caught up with them to be with the Lord in the air. 
And so the Lord's Supper reminds us to be ready for that day. And Paul goes on to give a a sober warning. And this is the last point here quickly, and we'll have our communion time together. Fourth, come to the Lord's Supper with examination of yourself. He says that in verse 27 to 34. Paul says that many of these Corinthians were, were having issues with their health, even were leaving this earth prematurely. <laughs> they, they were dying because God was disciplining them, because they were coming to the Lord's table in an unloving way, in an irreverent way, in a self-centered way. And he kind of points out there in verse 32, this doesn't mean that because they died, they're going to hell. That, that, it's just that you know, sometimes I think God looks at a believer and maybe the believer isn't doing what God expects him to do. He's not living for the Lord, but he's out there naming the name of Christ. Sometimes God just says, you know what, pal, I'm just going to bring you home early. You're, you're too much of a liability for me down there. You're not helping me out. You know, I remember I went to a, a car dealership one time years ago to buy a car. And I started talking to this salesman and kind of hit it off. And finally he just said, he goes, you know, I, I wouldn't buy one of these. I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy this, uh, uh, you know, Ford or whatever it was. I can't remember. You know, I, I'd, I'd get a Chevy. I'd get it. And I'm thinking, this guy's working at the dealership, and everybody thinks he's doing a wonderful job, and yet he's telling me, I would not buy a car here. You know, I mean, sometimes as believers... That's exactly what we're doing when our lives are not living, being lived out for the Lord. When people can look at us and say, well, yeah, that person goes to church, but I also see that person on Thursday. <laughs> and you should see them. But they're, they're, they're anything but you know, a church-going person on that night or that day. And so we need to make sure that we're looking at our own lives, not our neighbors next to us, but our own lives. It says examine ourselves. So the the judgment here doesn't mean external condemnation, but it means divine discipline. God disciplines us as his children, just like a parent would. You know, when a parent sees little Johnny running out in the freeway, what happens? Little Johnny gets a smack on the rear end probably. And he continues to get a smack on the rear end until little Johnny realizes he shouldn't run out in the freeway anymore. That's discipline. But that doesn't mean little Johnny is not a son to the father who's disciplining him anymore. And that's the relationship we have with God. When God sees our lives doing things that are awry, that are not honoring to him, he disciplines us. And you know how he does it? We saw last, last week in our study that sometimes it even means turning you over to, to Satan to, to let him do whatever he wants with you physically. Here in this world, that doesn't mean you're going to be Lost forever. But God even uses those things to discipline his children. That's how much he loves us. And so it says, but a man must examine himself. A man or a woman must examine himself. And so this is the time to do that. We do it privately. We take a mental inventory, really, of our relationship with Christ. Ask yourself these questions. Am I trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation? Am I sinfully at odds with anyone else? Is there any sin that I have not confessed and turned from? See, that's what the Lord's 
table is all about. Make no mistake about it, this table is not for the sinless. It's not for the sinless. It's for those who are dealing with their sin on a heart level as they're walking with Christ. You know, the context in which this Lord's Supper, the first one that the Lord had with his disciples, if you go back and you research the context in Scripture, guess what? The disciples at that time, right before the supper, were doing what? They were arguing amongst themselves. Who was going to be first in the kingdom of God? They were doing exactly what the Corinthians were doing, really. They were arguing who was going to be the greatest. And it was then that Jesus predicted three times, not just once, but three times, that Peter was going to deny him that very night. A short time later, remember, the disciples We're in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. He's in travail and prayer, and he's saying, hey, guys, i got to go have some time with the Father. Can you just be in prayer for me? This is going to be a tough night. And he comes back, and what are they doing? They're sleeping. (laughs) They're sleeping. So the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, is not for perfect saints, but it's rather for those who struggle with the shortcomings with those who struggle with the sins that are common to all of us. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't just shrug off known sin or excuse it and say, well, it's just my weakness or whatever. No, we should take sin very seriously because God takes sin very seriously. Don't ever forget the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be, he says. How Shall we who died to sin live in it? So don't use your grace in your salvation. Don't use the death of Christ as a means for you to sin more. I've heard Christians say, well, all of our sins are forgiven, so (laughs) why not? And that's exactly what Paul was saying. That's, That's not someone who knows the Lord. The Lord's Supper gives us a reminder that we need to deal with our sins on a heart level before God. I'm reminded of a Scottish theologian, John Duncan. He was very prominent in his day. And one time as a communion was being held in the Church of Scotland, the elements were passed by and it came to a 16-year-old girl. And she just turned her head aside and motioned for the elder to take the cup away. She couldn't drink it. And Professor Duncan reached his arm over, touched her shoulder, and said tenderly, Take it, lassie. It's for sinners. Now, it's for sinners who know the Lord, let me be clear, but it is for sinners. John Stott said this, If the cross is not central in our thinking, it is safe to say that our faith, whatever it be, is not the Christian faith. And our creed, whatever it be, is not the Apostles' Creed. See, the Lord's Supper reminds us to keep the cross of Jesus Christ central in our thinking. And so we're commanded to come often with love for others in remembrance of the Lord and then to examine our own selves. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can come to this table as believers in you trusting in your grace for our salvation. Father, we know that we can't save ourselves. 
Um, Lord, we have to trust in something bigger than ourselves, and that is the sacrifice that your son, the perfect son of God, the perfect lamb of God, as he lived his life here on earth, perfect in every way, and yet went to the cross to bear our sins in full, completely. And Lord, he died for us individually. He died for all those who would come to faith in Christ and therefore had to take upon himself our sin. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that this time of communion would not just be another ritual, but that we would truly understand what it means to partake of these elements, that they would remind us of your sacrifice, of your faithfulness, of your forgiveness, of your grace. And Father, that we would use this time even now to examine our own hearts, that we would partake of it in a worthy manner. Lord, this is open to all who know you as their personal Lord and Savior. And Father, it's not dependent on age or spirituality. It's just dependent on whether you have a relationship with Christ or not. And so, Lord, as these elements are passed, after we sing this next song, Father, we pray that you would just minister your grace to each one and help us to be reminded of all that you've done for us on our behalf. We thank you. And Lord, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that even now in these closing seconds, moments of our service, that they would cry out to you, Lord, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I know you. Help me to be sure. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Cry out to to the Lord. Be merciful to me, a sinner. When that's prayed from a sincere heart, that's a prayer that God will answer. He'll transform you. He'll forgive your sin. He'll free you from that burden that you've been carrying. And you'll have new life in Christ. And then you can partake with the body of Christ as we partake together here today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.